I can remember a moment in college, this was many years ago, when uh, we had compulsory chapel attendance. I was at a Christian college, so you had to go. And uh, some of the students' work assignment, uh, a few each semester, was to go to this big auditorium that set maybe a thousand and to check the empty seats which were assigned to particular students. And if you missed more than so many chapels, then you lost credit for your classes that semester. And so it was compulsory. You had to go. And you could only miss a, a couple, I believe, per semester unexcused. And um, I had already used my excuses. So I was a begrudging attender to a compulsory chapel at a Christian college. Translation, it's one of the last places on earth I wanted to be. A guest speaker came and he started to sing a children's song. At the beginning of his message, he opened with the words of a song that I had heard before, but like many of you, had never really thought about. And he said right before he began to sing that song in his opening lines, he said, when I was a college student, this little song saved me from a thousand troubles during my college days. Be careful little eyes what you see. Do you know this one? Be careful little ears what you hear. Do you know this? Be careful little tongue what you say. Be careful little hands what you do. Be careful little feet where you go. That's the beginning line of each one of the verses. But he sang the whole thing. And then the chorus says, there's a Father up above looking down in tender love. Oh, be careful little eyes what you see. And then the refrain, but he would emphasize it differently each time he got to the chorus. There's a Father up above looking down in tender love. And then another verse, there's a Father up above looking down. And then again, there's a Father up above looking down in tender love. Oh, be careful little feet where you go. There's so much wisdom in that little song. And I remember it because like that guest speaker, this power-packed truth down in that little children's chorus is exactly what the wise sage of Proverbs might have queued up to sing to his beloved son when he was just a little lad as he would tuck him into bed at night. There's a father. Son, there's a father. He's way above you. He's transcendently glorious. You've never had a thought that even comes close to reaching the heights of how above you He is. Son, there is a Father up above. But as transcendent as He is, He's closer to you than you are to yourself. He's looking down on you. Not with punitive judgment. There's a Father up above, imminently close to you, looking down in tender love. Therefore, 
be careful what you do. That would be the sermon in a children's song. The text is Proverbs chapter 15. And as is dangerous to do with the book of Proverbs, I admit, our text really resides in one verse. Proverbs 15, verse 3. Hear the Word of the Lord. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 3. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching the evil and the good. One more time. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching the evil and the good. Let's pray once again for God's blessing. Instead of me filling up the room with noise, why don't you in the quietness of your heart ask God for one thing that you would like for Him to do in the next few minutes that we share together. Father, if I could add my one thing, it would be that You would show us all now that You see us all the time. In Jesus' name, Amen. As we consider in our big series title, Wisdom for Life, today in the book of Proverbs, we've made our way to the theme of the presence of the Lord. Wisdom is derived from the presence of the Lord. Derived means given to you, gained. We don't have wisdom. It comes to us from outside of us. It's not innate to our nature. Wisdom is not something that you have because you're you or because you've lived long enough. Wisdom is derivative. It, it, it's a consequence. And in today's consideration, we want to see that wisdom is a consequence of the presence of the Lord. To be in close proximity to the One who is all-wise is where wisdom comes from. To walk intimately with the Lord. Intimately in love. A relationship. You can be close to the Lord and unwise. I'm mindful of the day Jesus rode into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey that had never been ridden as the Old Testament prophesied He would just prior to His crucifixion. And there were many, weren't there, in close proximity. Hail the Son of David! Hosanna to the Son of David! They were close. They were close enough that they could have reached out and touched Him. And perhaps some of them did. They were close in proximity, but they were were an eternity's distance in intimacy. You can be near and unwise. You can be close and not imminent. uh, Not not intimate. The reality of God's presence and the relationship that His eminence, His nearness represents is the fountain of wisdom. So today we want to look at His proximity. That He's close to us. And then we want to look at the consequence of that. That He sees it all. First, let's just deal with the reality I'll admit at the very beginning that most of this sermon is application. So two points that you already know 
And then, since we already know them, let's talk about what that must mean. Most of the sermon will be application. But first, let's just make sure we're on the same page. The reality is, number one, God is present. God is here. Now I understand that we pray often things that we know we mean, though we don't say what we all know we mean. I don't mean to critique the prayer or take it into some kind of school where you need to adjust your words. I think the words are fine because we know we don't mean the words. We all know what we mean. And if you want to critique everybody's prayer, you'll be the most miserable person to pray around. Father, be with so-and-so. We all know He's already there, which is why we pray such a thing. The reality is God is present. Look again at the little words of this verse. Verse 3. Look at the attribute or characteristic. The eyes of the Lord are in every place. The eyes of the Lord are in every place. Now this is that big word, anthropomorphism. This is a human-like characteristic attributed to God. Anthropos, anthropology, the study of man. Anthropos, man. Anthropomorphism is a man-like characteristic attributed to God. It's not that He has eyes. Jesus said in John 4 to the woman at the well, the Lord is Spirit. The Father is not the Holy Spirit, but the Father is a Spirit that has not a body like a man, says our catechism. So when we say the eyes of the Lord are in every place, we're meant to think of His all-seeing nature. But we're also meant to understand that as the wise sage is saying to his son in Proverbs 15, the eyes of the Lord are in every place. The eyes of the Lord are in every place. Now I want you to meditate on that. That means to pray about the words that the Holy Spirit wrote in that statement. Ask God what this means. To read the Bible by yourself is a fine thing to do, but it will profit you nothing. Many lost people have read the Bible from cover to cover. To prayerfully engage with the truth of the Word, that's what meditation is. It's to turn it over in your mind like a cow chews the cud, but to do it with prayer. What does this mean, Lord? The eyes of the Lord are in every place. It speaks both to the territory that God observes, as well as to the depth of the dimensions that are beneath His watch. Do you have categories to receive what I just said? It speaks both to the territory that God observes, as well as to the depth of the dimensions that are beneath His watch. Meaning, God sees every diverse moment that ever happens. The eyes of the Lord are in every place. But it also means that He sees to the depths. That is, to every motive that give rise to every person's actions. That's dimension. So first, the limitless scope of God's sight. Proverbs 15.3 The eyes of the Lord are in every place. This is the truth of God's omnipresence. This speaks to the geographic limitlessness of the sight of God. The psalmist speaks this way constantly. Psalm 11, the Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Well, good thing He's way over there. Not so fast. 
His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. Even from there, He sees you. Though the quill, or pardon me, through the quill of the prophet Jeremiah, one of God's potent self descriptions emerges in chapter 29. Jeremiah writing, God speaking. Am I a God who is near, declares the Lord, and not a God far off? Can a man hide himself in hiding places so that I do not see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord? So the truth that we could all repeat, God is present. The limitless scope of God's sight. There is no place that God does not see. But that speaks to, if you will, geographic swath. How far and wide is the reach of God's all-seeing eye? But now let's not go two-dimensional, but down. I want us also to see not only are the eyes of the Lord in every place broadly, they are in every place deeply. Proverbs 15.3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place. As for our heart motives, they are ever exposed to the all-discerning eye of God. Not what we do, but why we do what we do. And it is at that level that we must love the Lord. You can do the right thing for the wrong reason, and to you that will be sin. James says, He who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him that is sin. But Romans says that if you do the right thing without faith, to you that is sin. So to do nothing when you should do something is sinful. To do something when you do it for the wrong reason is sinful. Our heart motives are ever exposed to the all-discerning eye of God. David said to his son Solomon in a verse that I quoted last week, only the first part, in 1 Chronicles 28, As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve Him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. Why would David say that to his son? Because, the verse goes on to say, for the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. Do you see not only how far, but how deep God sees? He searches your heart. He understands without any confusion, quote, every intent of your thoughts. The Proverbs have a lot to say about the soothsayer. The one who speaks with this eloquent wisdom. And it's almost like the snake charmer lulling you to sleep. And though it sounds so good on the other end of that instrument, they know that they intend to do you harm. The writer of Proverbs is saying God sees that. He knows those depths of motives. The writer of Hebrews gave testimony to the same wonderful truth. For the Word of the Lord is living and active, the writer of Hebrews says. Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of your heart. God sees that. There is no creature, Hebrews goes on to say, there is no creature hidden from God's 
sight. But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. This is what Proverbs 15 is about. The eyes of the Lord are in every place. Hebrews applies that truth to our motives, the thoughts and the intentions of our heart. Through the prophet Ezekiel, the capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, same one referenced in Proverbs 15.3, the eyes of Yahweh. Yahweh told Israel in Ezekiel 11, I know your thoughts. It's haunting, isn't it? He knows what you're thinking. Jesus taught us that even before we utter the words of our prayer, before they even make their way to our tongue, God knows. The psalmist said in Psalm 139, You, O Lord, capital L-O-R-D, You, O Lord, know my thoughts from afar. So just the fact that God is present. And second and final point before we get to application is there's a result. There's a consequence. The reality is God is with you. Deeper than you're even with yourself. He's closer to you than you are to you. He's here. He's always here. He's never not here. That's the reality, but the result is, the consequence is, He sees it all. Verse 3. Look again at the words of this little verse and turn it around in prayer before the face of God who is with you. The eyes of the Lord are in every place. What's He doing? Watching the evil and the good. That's the result. God's eyes are where you are. Is this not both comforting and convicting? Comforting because we can say with the psalmist, where can I go from Your Spirit? Where can I flee from Your presence? If I ascend to heaven, You are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, You are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I go to the remotest part of the sea, even there Your hand will lead me and Your right hand will lay hold of me. So there's comfort here. Watching the evil and the good. So if you're one of the many who feel forgotten by everyone in the world, including God, if you're one of the many who feel alone and as a result, often fearful, if you're one of the many who experience what seems like unbroken heartbreak, then the Bible's answer in Proverbs and Psalms and so many other texts is look up. Look out. Jesus is with you. There's the comfort. The eyes of the Lord are in every place. In fact, it is to the broken and contrite of spirit that the Lord of Isaiah says, to this one I will look. To him or her who is broken and contrite of spirit and who trembles at My Word, God sees you. Through the chronicler, God speaks and says, the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth so that He may strongly support those whose hearts are completely His. Do you feel alone? Or confused? or at times honestly helpless and not knowing what to do. Take Genesis 16 as a tonic to your soul when there was a pregnant servant girl 
who now found herself homeless and wandering aimlessly through an unknown land. And for the first time in any ancient literature, isn't the Bible beautiful? For the first time in any ancient literature, any religious book of any stripe, the deity calls a woman by name, Hagar. Hagar. This is a Christophany in Genesis 16. The appearance of the Lord Jesus. And the Lord says to Hagar by name, name him this boy Ishmael. You know what that name means? God hears. And when Hagar finally responds, she says in verse 13 of Genesis 16, then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God who sees. El Roe. For she said, Have I even remained alive here after seeing him? The result of God's reality that he is present is that he sees it all. This is a comfort to the people of God. You all know the 23rd Psalm, but do you know the 23rd Psalm? I told the story before of the eloquent orator, the actor who got up, I am told, uh, I don't know if it's fabricated or true, but in the Playhouse of London and paraded onto the stage with such oratory eloquence and quoted the 23rd Psalm that you could hear a pin drop in the place. And after the eloquent actor and orator made his way off the stage, out walked a shuffling old pastor, wrinkled and uh, not very eloquent, who also quoted the 23rd Psalm. And when in the first instance you could hear a pin drop in the room, in the second instance there wasn't a dry eye in the house. Do you know the 23rd Psalm or do you know the 23rd Psalm? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Go down to verse 4. Yea, even though... Do you need comfort, friend? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with Me. There's comfort as a consequence. He sees the evil and He sees the good. He sees where you are, but you have to remember that He also sees where you are not. Because you can't see it doesn't mean He can't see it. Because you're not there doesn't mean that He's not there. There's comfort and conviction from this reality as well. There's no place to hide from God's presence. Pondering the fact that God sees is not deep enough pondering. Seeing is actually not just what He does, but as Hagar mentioned, it's who He is. He is El Roe. So everywhere you're not, God sees that too. It, it, it's something that our minds cannot contain. It's beyond us. It's true of God and God alone. So whether you're in the hustling and bustling crowds of the world's biggest cities, like as we're here gathered in this little place today, such a tiny little fragment of the human population, there are, as we are seated here, 24 plus million people bustling around the streets of Shanghai. There's 18.5 million people in Beijing. There's 18 plus million in Karachi, Pakistan. There's over 13 million running up and down the streets of Tokyo and 12 plus million in Mexico City. And what we're saying is God sees them all. He sees where you are and He sees where you are not. 
Verse 11 of our chapter says, Sheol and Abaddon lie open before the Lord. How much more the hearts of men. He sees it all. Well, there's the entire sermon. So here's the application. The reality is God is with you. And the result is that He sees the evil and the good. So I want you to think with me for just a moment about some of the many applications that come out of this beautiful truth. And I want to begin with the territory of reward and justice. The reward of the righteous and justice for the wicked. Wisdom understands something as a consequence of the all-seeing eye of God. Wisdom understands that you can want a lot of things without needing them. Have you learned the lesson between want and need? We all try to teach it to our children, don't we? I need versus I want. But while we're busy as adults trying to instill these simple truths into the consciences of the little people entrusted to our care, how seldom do we adults delineate and differentiate between what we want and what we need? I want reward for my righteous acts. And in my scheme, it seems that that the righteous acts I accomplish would be met with God's instantaneous reward. Similarly, I want justice on the evildoer. But do you see the difference between wanting and needing? Needing instant payoff for righteous deeds and needing instant justice for every unrighteous act that you ever see committed is not the path of wisdom. There's so much peace that comes from the truth. The eyes of the Lord are in every place watching the evil and the good. Let's think of reward and then justice. Reward for righteousness. Every righteous act will be rewarded perfectly. This is an application of the truth that the eyes of the Lord are in every place watching the evil and the good. Let me say it again. Every righteous act will be rewarded perfectly. Can you get there from the truth that God sees it all? In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes to the church in chapter 4, verse 5, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes who will bring to light the things hidden in darkness and will uncover or disclose the motives of men's hearts. Then, each man's praise will come to him from God. What Paul is saying to the church at Corinth is God sees everything. All of it. All the things I can't see, He sees. And all the ways you're judging me, and I have a propensity to want to defend myself, is basically what Paul is saying. I don't need to do that. I want to, but I don't need to. Why? Because God sees it all. And there's coming a day when everything hidden in darkness and the motives of men's hearts will result in God praising people for their deeds of righteousness. The writer of Hebrews says the same thing. God is not unjust. Hold that in your mind for just a moment. God is not unjust. Don't forget that little phrase. God is not unjust. Now what does the rest of the verse say? So as to forget your work. And the love which you have shown toward His name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. 
God is not what? Unjust. Now, I want you to think about this verse. What the writer of Hebrews is saying is, if you ever minister to the people of God in any way, or if you continue ministering, I'm quoting the verse, to the saints, and it seems like nobody else knows that, good. Because every single time you perform one righteous act of service to the saints, that's the people of God, every single time, if you're alone in your prayer closet and you're praying for your brother or sister, if you're serving them in some material, tangible, practical way, any time big or small, micro or macro, any time you do that, God, Hebrews 6.10, is putting His justice on the line. So that if He fails to remember it, He ceases to be God. God is not unjust so as to forget your ministry to His people. Do you need Him to reward you now? No. Is it okay to want it? Yes. Must you have it? No. Why? Because there's coming a day based on the foundation of the rock of God's immutable, unchangeable character when He will perfectly reward every single righteous deed. The eyes of the Lord are in every place watching the evil and the good. In 1 Corinthians 15.58, the great resurrection chapter, it ends with this verse. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing, knowing, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Righteous acts will be rewarded perfectly. How do we know that? Because God sees it all. But the flip side of that is justice. Every single sin, every single sin will be punished perfectly. This is a direct consequence or application of the truth that the eyes of the Lord are in every place watching the evil and the good. Every single sin will be punished perfectly. Verse 11, we've already read, says, Sheol and Abaddon lie open before the Lord. How much more the hearts of men. If we skip down, he continues talking about the presence of the Lord in verse 29. The Lord is far from the wicked, but He hears the prayer of the righteous. Justice. Here's a direct consequence of the all-seeing eye of God. Do you want justice in this world? You should. Do you want it? You should. Now I'm going to ask you a very tough question. Do you need it? The Christian can say in a very complex way, depends on how you're asking me that question, yes or no. I do need it. I ultimately need it for God's sake. Not mine. Because it is not right. It is not right that God's name be defamed. That's my need. One day, I need that because it is right that God uphold His honor. But here's a newsflash. We live in such a broken place, this world's going to continue to be unjust until Jesus comes back. But the eyes of the Lord are in every place watching the evil and the good. We heard in Hebrews, 
that the thoughts and the intentions of men's hearts are filleted wide open in front of the all-seeing eye of God with whom we have to do. The justice of God is coming. Isaiah 9, He has already come. There will be no end to the increase of His government or of peace on the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. That's a verse about Jesus 700 years before He was born. Isaiah 30, Therefore the Lord longs to be gracious to you, and therefore He waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are all those who long for Him. There's a connection between He sees it all, and every sin will be perfectly punished. Why do you say, O Jacob? Why do you assert, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due to me escapes the notice of my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the Creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. Every single sin. And I mean the motives in your heart. Every single sin will one day perfectly be punished. Psalm 94, How long will the wicked, O Lord, how long will the wicked exult? They have said, Psalm 94.7, the Lord does not see. The Lord, the God of Jacob, does not pay heed. And then God's done with that foolishness in verse 8. And He speaks in the first person, pay heed, you senseless among the people. When will you understand, stupid ones? He who planted the ear, does He not hear? He who formed your eye, does He not see? One day, one day, and nobody will be able to stand with you. You'll stand all by yourself before the God who has seen you your entire existence. From the moment of your inception, your conception in your mother's womb, until the day of your final breath, every nanosecond, not only of your activity that you have done, not only the words you have said, not only the ways you behave, but deep down in the recesses of your heart where God alone sees, all of it will be vividly portrayed before a jury. And you will be on trial. And the jury will be made of three. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He will not call witnesses. He will not hear arguments. Every single sin must be perfectly punished because God is God. Now, if we stop there with application, this is one of the worst sermons I could ever recommend anybody listen to. You can't stop there. Because God sees, Proverbs 15.3, the evil and the good, I can want reward for righteousness but not need it because I know the day is coming. I can want justice for sin done in the world and big injustices on a large scale. I can want it deeply. I can work for it but not need it because I know the day is coming. But what can I do? How ought I respond right here, right now? 
a few ways for your consideration. Would you make them a matter of prayer even as I'm talking? Number one, come out of hiding. God knows where you are anyway. Just come out from behind the bushes of Genesis 3. When our first parents went to sewing class and started putting the fig leaves together to cover their shame, they should have just come out from behind the bushes to begin with. God is pursuing you. The eyes of the Lord are in every place watching the evil and the good. In verse 11, when it says Sheol, that's the netherworld, or Abaddon, that's a place of destruction, even a word used for Satan in Revelation. These lie open before the Lord. How much more the hearts of men. That phrase in verse 11 literally translated is, how much more the sons of Adam. The hearts of men. Adam's sons do what Adam did. When we sin, we hide. There's a propensity in us, in our depravity, to run and hide when we sin. That's an anti-Gospel. It's actually a work of false righteousness. It's an attempt to cover our shame and our own power when the right response is, O son of Adam, come out of hiding. You're no different than any other man. Your heart, as Scripture says, is an open grave before the Lord of hosts. He sees all your sinful decay and every bit of decomposition from your sin is rising as a stench in His nostrils. He watches your every move and deeper He sees the motives. Hebrews 4 of your heart. So Proverbs 15.25 says, the Lord will tear down the house of the proud. Come out of hiding. Like our first parents in the Garden of Eden, can you hear the Lord walking by and calling out your name? Where are you? Where are you? It's not because He's asking from ignorance. It's not that He doesn't know. He wants you to hear His voice call your name even in your sin. He's beckoning you out. He's wooing you out of your own destruction and damnation. He's calling your name. So come out of hiding. Second, would you consider this? The wicked will never escape God's notice. They never have. Now I want you to think about this because this is, a, this, is a, this is a tough one. The wicked never escape God's notice. We've talked just briefly about that. They actually fulfill God's purposes. This is a very tough pill to swallow, but it is shot right through the Bible. What is he watching? Proverbs 15.3 He's watching the evil and the good. It's a very tough pill to swallow, but until we learn to look at evil through God's eyes, we're not going to see it the way God wants us to see it. And it's going to have a crippling effect on us and the way we try to live our lives. Proverbs 16.4 The Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. Talk about tough verses. I want you to think about this. Not only are the wicked never escaping the notice of God, they are actually positively fulfilling the purposes of God. I could take you to many places in the Bible, but why not go to the apex? The cross of Christ. The cross of Christ. 
Can you handle a big statement? I want you to listen carefully. I'm on your team. Let's think about this. If you cannot handle this sentence, then you cannot handle the cross. It is not sin for God to ordain that sin be. It is not sin for God to ordain that sin exists. If that sentence is not true, then the cross is void of all of its power. The most sinful thing that has ever happened in the history of the world and ever will happen is the crucifixion of the only innocent person who's ever lived. The only fair thing for everybody outside of Christ is that we all perish. The only right thing for Christ is that He never perish. From whence came the cross? The greatest sin that's ever existed is the crucifixion of the only innocent man. Who planned that? Acts chapter 2. Sinful men carried it out. The hands of sinful men, Peter said. But the hands of sinful men carried out the greatest sin that's ever happened, the cross of Christ. Quote, according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. What? According to what? The predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. If the greatest sin that has ever happened happened according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, then we must be able to put together this phrase again, it is not sin for God to ordain that sin be. So we've got to realize, not only do the wicked never escape the notice of God, rather, somehow mysteriously to us, they actually fulfill His purposes. Which is why the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You can't stamp out Christianity. You can hate us all you want to, and Jesus even promised that you would. But you cannot stop God's purposes. There is no dam in the river of the flow of God's good purposes. And you can bring that all the way down to where you live. And I mean your personal life. Now, when somebody's going through a horrific time, the last thing you need to do is quote a bunch of verses to them about how God means good in that. He does mean good, and they might, not, they might know the verse better than you do. But when they can step back for just a moment, and they can see from a vantage point up on a hill overlooking their sorrow and their trouble, especially when it's caused by the sin of others against them, it is true, and they do need to embrace, just like you and I, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His his purpose. So, first I want you to consider coming out of hiding. God sees you anyway. He knows where you are. He's calling you by name. Second, you can rest assured tonight that the wicked never escape God's notice. They're actually fulfilling His purpose. And third, would you let your heart again be tenderized to the presence of the Lord as a source of obedience and courage in the face of adversity? The presence of the Lord engendering obedience. The presence of the Lord fostering courage to walk with Christ. Your endurance in the faith and mine depends on seeing the invisible God. Is He with you? 
How did Moses endure ill treatment with the people of God? How did Moses choose to leave the palaces of Egypt and walk through the wilderness with the children of Israel? Hebrews 11. He found courage to endure ill treatment with the people of God rather than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin in Egypt. He was enabled and emboldened to endure how? Hebrews 11.27 By seeing Him who is unseen. That Christ was with him. Engendered obedience and courage. What did God say to Moses' predecessor after Moses was not permitted to enter the land of Israel, the promised land, because of his own disobedience and not treating the Lord as holy at Horeb? What did God say to Moses' predecessor, Joshua, as Joshua was preparing to take the people into the land? Have I not commanded you Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed. How am I going to do that, Lord? Haven't you seen all those giants? Don't you know where we're going? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Where does courage to walk with Christ come from? Christ. (laughs) It comes from Him. Latching on to Him. Not showing Him how courageous you are, but trembling like Joshua. Maybe fretting like Moses. Saying, Lord, you got the wrong guy. Haven't you heard the way I stutter and stumble and I can't speak? Go speak to them. But I can't talk. Go speak to them. Who, who am I going to tell them sent me? You tell them that the I Am sent you. Courage comes from the presence of the Lord. Let your heart be tenderized again. By the presence of the Lord is the source of your obedience and courage. Proverbs says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. Literally set on high. Finally, number four. Here's our application. Cry out to the Lord. I don't know what you hear when you hear statements like that. Cry out to the Lord for the experience of His presence as your deepest desire and delight. Ask Him. I'm not talking only about the subjective feeling that He's near you, but ask for that too. Cry out to Him for an experience of His presence as your deepest desire and delight. Not to get you out of some trouble so that you can go on living your merry way. Which is partly... Surely not entirely, but partly why the Lord rarely answers prayers for physical healing. Because when we finally pray, when something hurtful happens, why do we want Him to heal us? Because it sure is inconvenient to go through life with this pain, and it sure would be nice if Jesus would take my pain away so I could go on living life as I had previously done without Him. He's not a means to an end. He's the end in Himself. He's the goal Cry to the Lord for the experience of His presence as your deepest desire and delight. Oh, for a revival in our day. And I don't mean revival in our modern sense of the use of the word. I mean revival among the people of God like Exodus 33. Revival like this. Then Moses said to God, 
Do you know this one? Then Moses said to God, if Your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. If You're not going, God, we don't want to go. I don't care what blessings are over there. I know all about the land that flows with milk and honey. I know all about the promises. Including the promise of a united kingdom under Your law, honoring You, under Your rule. I, I, I know what You've said, Lord. He just came down from Sinai. It wasn't long before that He was holding the tablets in His hand that God had etched Himself into the stones. He had just experienced the glory cloud and the trembling. And He says, God, if You're not going with us, don't lead us up from here. Exodus 33.15 For how then can it be known that I have found favor in Your sight, I and Your people? Is it not by Your going with us so that we, I and Your people, may be distinguished from all the other people who are upon the face of the earth? You hear what He's saying? God, we've got to have You because there's no other designation that we're Yours than whether You are with us. You are the distinguishing mark of Your people. Not us. We have to have You. Now, it sounds silly to me too. I'll admit it. That there's ever been such a church as 1 Corinthians 14. But surely they exist because God Himself speaks about them. Where it says in 1 Corinthians 14 that when a visitor comes in among you, a guest comes in among you, I've never seen this happen, but oh, I long for a revival like this. And it says the guest falls on their face. If you've been to a service like this, then come find me after please and help me to rejoice in the Lord because you've seen it happen. The guest falls on their face and says, certainly, God is among you. Oh, for a revival of the presence of the Lord. Don't lead us up from here if you don't go with us. Oh, for a revival of certainly God is with this people. There's a more powerful example than Moses and the church at Corinth. It's the true and greater Moses. It's the true Israel. We conclude here, the, the one you know who ever enjoyed the presence of God, the unbroken fellowship of koinonia with the Lord, the Lord Jesus, listen to what He said. This is a verse that you should aspire to have etched into your tombstone. He who sent Me is with Me. He has never left Me alone. For I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. John 8.29 He's with Me. He has never left me because I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. Do you know that God will steal away the expression of His presence when you live in sin? Which is why no true Christian, and I'm going to underline true Christian, no true Christian can be sure that they're a true Christian when they're living in sin. God takes away the assurance of salvation as a gift so that you'll come back and seek Him. Why would He assure you in your rebellion? He who sent me is with me. He's never left me alone. For I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. Oh, what sweet harmony. What fellowship. What joy divine between the Father and the Son. It's Jesus, we're told by Peter in Acts 2, who was the one praying in Psalm 16, in Your presence, 
there is fullness of joy. Now, while Jesus is the one who can say, the Father's never left me alone, I always do the things that please Him, you do know that there was one fateful day, don't you? The first moment in all of eternity when the all-seeing eye of God turned His back on the Son. This Jesus, who had always done the things that pleased the Father, had known the joy of unbroken fellowship with the Father and the Spirit from all eternity, including the 33 and a half years of His incarnation. This One who had lived in the aroma of the presence of God, whether He was feeding 5,000 men, or whether He was alone in the wilderness, or up on the mountaintop in the deep of the night in prayer. This One lived in unbroken communion with the Father. There came a fateful day when the Father turned His back on the Son. The Lord of glory this wise son of Proverbs who had always listened to his father's instruction, who had always delighted in his father's presence, the Lord Jesus was for a moment separated from the presence of his father. At the cross, God the Father turned his back on God the Son as God the Son, the Lord Jesus, bore your sins and mine. Habakkuk is right. He is of purer eyes than to behold iniquity. Such a stench of putrid rebellion was placed on the shoulders of God the Son as He hung on the cross that the holy eyes of God the Father could not even turn and look at Him. The back of the Father. The eyes of the Father turned away for a moment. He was separated from the Father for a moment as He bore your sins and mine. And the promise of the Gospel is this. If you will believe that Jesus died for your sins, if you will embrace the risen Jesus as all of your righteousness before God forever, then the great promise of the Gospel is this, the Father turned His back on the Son for a moment so that He would never turn His back on you. It's not to an indiscriminate audience that Jesus said, I am with you always even to the end of the age. That's spoken to His people. That's spoken to the church. That's spoken to His disciples. The true Christian is the one whose heart is resting in Jesus. It's, it, it, it's the Christian whose affections are wrapped, W-R-A-P-T, raptured with worshiping desire for the presence of the Lord. The reason we want to be in heaven is because, wait for it, Jesus is there. He makes heaven heaven. Without Him, there would be no heaven. Therefore, the heart of the redeemed sings with the psalmist, the nearness of God is my good. The heart of the redeemed rejoices with James 4. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. The conclusion, the eyes of the Lord are in every place watching the evil and the good, is what the rest of the chapter goes on to say. Like verse 29, the Lord is far from the wicked, but He hears the prayer of the righteous. Hears? Hears the prayer of the righteous? Did He hear Jesus' prayer? Yes. In the days of His flesh, Hebrews 5 says, in the days of Jesus' flesh, He offered up both loud 
crying and tears to the One who was able to save Him from death. He offered up loud crying and tears to the One able to save Him from death. Was He heard? Yes. The verse goes on to say, and He was heard because of His piety. His godly fear. Hebrews 5. He was heard. What did God say? No. Let this cup pass from Me. No. Does He hear you when you cry? If His answer is no, that's still hearing. The Lord is far from the wicked, but He hears the prayer of the righteous. How is He able to hear you? Because He's not way over there. He's right here. Hudson Taylor, great missionary to inland China a century ago, lost his wife and his first four children to death. He buried them all. And after the death of his dear wife, Hudson Taylor wrote in his journal, often I find myself wondering whether it is possible for her who is taken to have more joy in His presence than He has given to me now. Was God with Taylor? Yes. In tears? Yes. In another journal entry, Taylor wrote, Jesus who once wept at the grave of Lazarus often now weeps in and through Me. In another entry, at times, God does not allow me to realize, God does, does allow me to realize all that was, but is not now. Speaking of the death of his wife and children. And then he, Taylor writes, who will soon come and wipe away every tear, now comes and takes all bitterness from my tears. And he fills my heart with deep, true, unutterable, Gladness. He doesn't take the tear away. He takes the bitterness from the tear away. Finally, I want you to listen to one more Taylor entry from his journal as he describes how he navigated the mixture of the loss of his wife and the blessings of God's presence that came as a result of God comforting him and caring for him. Taylor writes, God alone knows what Maria Jane's absence is to me. Twelve and a half years of such unbroken spiritual fellowship United labor, mutual satisfaction and love fall to the lot of very few. He had a good marriage. But were the loss less? Were my loss less? I should know less of His power and sustaining love. Do you see what God did for Taylor? He didn't take the loss away. He trumped it. He got bigger than the loss. As we enter this Advent season, which means God has come, as we look forward to Christ's second Advent, when perfect righteousness will be rewarded and perfect justice will be meted out against every sin, either on Christ or on the sinner, let us remember His name. If you can't remember anything else from this sermon, that's fine. Remember His name. Remember His name. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son and they shall call His name Emmanuel. Which translated means God is with us.
God is with us. The eyes of the Lord are in every place. Every place. Watching the evil and the good. Let's pray together. Father, I can think of no more fitting response to a meditation on Your presence and Your Gospel love than the Lord's Supper where You have promised to be in a special way present with us. Your spiritual presence as we remember through the elements of the bread and the cup the love of Christ. As we hearken back those 2,000 years to the broken body and the spilled blood of our Savior, that is the greatest possible display of Your presence. You are with us. You see our need. You came to our rescue. The table is a bold, loud shout that You are with us. But it's also an emblem of the day on the horizon when we will be with You forever. And there will be no break to the enjoyment of Your presence. There will be no diminishing of the ever-heightened increase of our delight in You. And then the verse will read, the eyes of the Lord are in every place watching the good. No more evil. No more pain. No more loss. And this table says that day is coming when that same Jesus comes again. Who once bled and died, now risen, ascended, and reigning, will soon return. And O oh Lord, how I pray that through this celebratory, simple meal, we will all remember Your name is Emmanuel. You are God with us. And Lord, I pray for all those who remain seated for whatever reason. Whether questions about their Christianity, lack of baptism, Retaining some sin that they're unwilling to part with. Not united to a local church that testifies to their Christian profession. Whatever the case, Lord, I pray that whether those seated or those who come and gather around the table, that each of us will take advantage of this opportunity to marinate for these moments in the fact that You are right here. Oh Lord, how sweet and awful is the place with Christ within the doors. Oh Lord, You are wonderful. Thank You for Your presence. Thank You for Your presence. Thank You for Your unbroken, always with us, never forsaking us presence. We love You. In Jesus' name, Amen.